welcome to another episode of Chris Reed's book. Welcome back to yet another week of an exciting episode of Chris Reed's book. I am Chris Pullman. This is my podcast where I read to you every week a section out of my first novel, at this point my first novel, Mystery and Deceit from Earth to Mars. If you're new to this podcast, welcome. Thank you for coming. Please do know that this is a serial podcast. That means that I am reading the chapters out of my novel in order. So if this is your first podcast, I would highly recommend, even though we are outside of the main book in the appendices, I would still highly recommend that you go back and listen to all the episodes in order. Uh, You know, there are, uh, all the episodes are available out there on iTunes through your favorite podcast app or over at narclanic.com slash chrisreadsbook. I'll be updating the site to make it a little easier to get to the raw mp3 MP3 files there, but they are all over there so that you can just grab those and put them, you know, simply on like an mp3 player rather than on a a podcast application if you don't do that sort of thing. But if you are a returning listener, thank you very much for coming back this week. Last week, I stopped in the middle of uh, the report that the kind of author of the book, the, the book is kind of written from James Hall's perspective, and so what he included in his book, per se, was uh, the article that he wrote on LNH Barr, as well as uh, the paper he wrote for uh, his college class as well as all of the sources for that. So we stopped about halfway through the novel that he wrote. Uh, Not the novel, I'm sorry. Halfway through the paper that he wrote. Which was titled... I am way past it. A Hero's Report. So... Again, what I will be doing as I read this is um, I'll be calling out the section headers as they come up as well as the sources that James used when he wrote this. Well, when I wrote this, you know. Um, But I'll read the rest of his paper and then get into one or two of the sources as well. There are a number of sources to this. And uh, just FYI, dear listener, I have finished editing this book, which means that I'm going to go back and re-record some of the early episodes with the edited versions of the chapters, because I didn't start recording this podcast with the edited versions. I started recording with the original versions, uh, the unedited. And I'll also, hopefully this week, be getting out some query letters to agents so we'll see where that goes maybe you're an agent listening to this because i do intend for this to be another way to get this work out to agents is to just be able to tell them go go to my website download the mp3 you can listen to it that's exactly what is going on in my book so if that's you thank you very much for listening anyway we're already about five minutes into this episode and i haven't started reading it so let's get to it This is episode 24 of Chris Reed's book. Section header. End of combat. The last important tidbit from Brewer's message of 20 February 2049 that only compounds the perplexity of the above questions is the following. All chaos resistance has simply seemed to fall away. It's incredible. All the chaos units we knew about are simply gone. Source, 20 February, 2049. What military force, able to reduce 15,000 troops by 94%, simply disbands? What would be the purpose? 
History records that the war did not come to an end until the evening of 12 April 2049, after the last of Chaos's generals was killed. Nonetheless, if oral history is to be believed, which it is as shown above, then for the last two months of the War of Insurrection, the only battles that occurred were ones wherein TDF forces were made to fight officerless contingents of chaos forces, those yet holding on to false ideological hopes that chaos would prevail. Instead of surrender, the leadership of chaos's movement went into hiding, building to a final crescendo of a last stand on 12 April 2049. After the war ended with the defeat of Chaos's forces at the Acropolis in Greece, Staff Sergeant Brewer's letter of 20 June 2049 indicates that his heavily depleted battalion was redeployed to the TDF base in Plymouth, Wisconsin. That is, the very base that Chaos had attempted to take on his march northward that terminated in the Battle of Chicago, the same base where Brewer and his company had sat for several weeks before being redeployed to southern Illinois, prior to their push southward through the United States. This time, though, their mission was different. The war over, their assignment changed. It's crazy what's going on these days. We won! Why are we being treated like a defeated army? The TDF is meant to protect the people, and here, people are decrying it as a radical, hate-mongering organization that antagonizes war for its own gains. Where were these people when the call came for recruits? Where were they when the government asked for help in its own defense? And further, where is that government that we helped protect? It seems to be the shunning of our very existence. Source, 20 June, 2049. There was no more enemy to fight. Civilians, after all, were not a force to be dealt with by use of rifles and bullets. More yet, though, such times had to have proved tough for Brewer and his comrades. They had been trained for physical combat. Over nearly four years in the field, their skills had been honed. By a process of natural selection, they were the most capable of all the TDF forces. They had suffered the harshest conditions and survived. But now, the war of insurrection over, they faced a new battle, one for which they had not trained, one for which... No ready-made weapons were available, and for which no fortifications, no matter how well built, were adequate defense. Such a sentiment, that of being ill-prepared for the life they now led, is extant in another of Brewer's letters. After working a supply, as a supply company these last few months, getting, pushing, and transporting goods from our defense to base, I honestly think I miss combat. Source, 21 August. 2049. Also in this letter, Brewer, now company first sergeant for his contributions to supply logistics while at Plymouth, mentions the tribunals, the war courts, beginning to be set up. He asks, as certainly many of his fellows did, all of Cass's elite are dead and gone. No one's left. Are they going to try ashes in an attempt to mollify people? Source, 21 August, 2049. Brewer would not have to wait long for an answer. They're putting TDF leadership up on war charges? What sort of horse crap is this? This is beyond the pale. All I can say is that whoever is whipping the public into the frenzy needed to exert this sort of pressure on the government is doing one heck of a job. Source, 4 October, 2049. As the oral history tells, and First Sergeant Brewer's message confirms leaders of the TDF were brought to account for the war. When one thinks that there was no chaos leadership left alive at the end of the war, such a move begins to make some sense. The public would look for someone to blame, and the only military force left on Earth was the TDF, the very same from whence chaos had risen to power. This writer certainly makes no attempt to defend the actions of the government tribunals, only to understand upon what genesis they found footing by which to claim legitimacy and from which to operate. Section. Plans Behind Plans Four years and three months after being deployed, Brewer writes, We've been getting lots of transfers of personnel lately. Tanya from Baker says that she's heard all TDF forces will be getting orders for Plymouth soon. Source. 24 May. 2050. As every Terran knows, Exile Day was 7 August 2050. 
the final verdict of the tribunals in Nuremberg weren't handed down until a month prior, 7 July. As such, a general transfer of forces to the TDF's Plymouth base would pretend an advanced knowledge of events to come. While one could certainly see which way the wind was blowing to transfer all TDF personnel worldwide to Plymouth on a hunch would seem a stretch. A more likely explanation, and one this author believes would be substantiated by evidence presented earlier in this paper, is the following. Knowing from the oral history that the Prime Minister of the time ordered a missing man overflight as a send-off for the TDF, a gesture which cost his party political clout worldwide for a full decade, and also understanding that there was a long-standing positive relationship between the government and the TDF, a more reasonable explanation for the impetus behind the consolidation of the TDF to Plymouth is that someone in the know, presumably the Prime Minister, tipped them off. Who else but such a person could have had any inkling of things to come almost a year in advance? As far back as Brewer's letter of 21 August 2049, he describes how the supplies we've been getting are right for setting up whole new communities. Moreover, in his letter of 28 December 2049, Brewer relates how supplies are coming in and being packed as tight as they can. There's so many getting sent here now. A buddy of mine down in Ohio at the airbase there says he's started getting space requests but labeled eyes only. There's a lot of fairly huge equipment being delivered and stored around the Midwest these days. In his message of 24 May 2050, Brewer goes further in saying, We have enough foodstuffs and miscellaneous supplies to last 40,000 people a couple of years. And finally, in his second-to-last surviving message, Brewer says, 40,000 a few years? Try the 15,000 of us that's left for a decade. Source, 7 July 2050. It all fits a pattern of long-term planning for an eventuality few would have thought possible in August of 2049. Few, except, perhaps for a TDF elite with reliable high political connections. Eric was planning for this all along. They knew! Source, 7 July, 2050. Irregardless of how they knew, the TDF were thoroughly prepared for the Articles of Exile when they came on 7 July 2050. Shortened to the point, the Articles gave the TDF a militant force with no other purpose, 30 days from their signing to enforce on themselves exile from the planet Earth in perpetuity. Source, Nuremberg Tribunals. Almost immediately, more propaganda messages began circulating. The first known such message, sent by email on 8 July 2050, calls for people to sign up for an electronic list so as to be notified of details of a rally of disapproval being organized to give the TDF the perfect send-off. Source, bringing the troops to send them out. Another artifact to survive is a top 10 list of reasons not to exile the TDF. The circulation date is unknown. However, such list has items such as I haven't sold my stock of I Hate TDF screen print tees yet, 800 Hate TDF volume dif discounts, and without the TDF, I'll have to go back to hating my mother-in-law, and she makes good cookies. Source, Top 10. These well represent a part of the public sentiment. While Brewer's letters of the time failed to include the reaction of the citizens around him, his letter of 4 October 2049 does state that, up here in Wisconsin, we're not getting any of that hatred. There are a few crazies around, but for the most part, the people around base get it. They're all supportive of us and grateful for what we did, for our sacrifices. Source, 4 October 2049. The interesting part of this dichotomy, the love and hate of the TDF, is only compounded in another opine of 3 August 2050. I would like to start by saying how sick and tired I am of hearing people complain about how horrible and unfair the exile of the TDF is. The greatest threat mankind has ever known was fully a product of the very people who saved us from ourselves. Further yet, 
the author, Scotch420, reminds readers that emergency response personnel still exist. You can't tell me that the cops and firefighters aren't adequate for their job, because if that's the case, we need better ones. Let them go, I say. And all you wine bags at the grocery store, the Walmart, the bank, Fleet Farm, and everywhere else can just shut the TDF up. Source, Scotch 420. But by 8 July 2050, public opinion no longer mattered. Events had been set in motion. The first in a chain of dominoes had been pushed, and the TDF was now exiled from Earth. Brewer, in his last message home, mentions how he was taking personal charge of loading the terraforming equipment into the TDF spaceships at the Sheboygan spaceport as, it's going to be a tight fit. Brewer goes on to say, well, I'm not saying goodbye just yet. I'm letting you know that I'm going to have to. After the last one of the terraforming equipment is loaded, I'll shoot you guys another email to set up a Skype conversation. Don't worry about me. I'll be okay. Anyways, talk to you soon. Source, 13 July, 2050. After digging as much as he could, this author could find no evidence that Brewer's follow-up email ever occurred. As is recorded in the oral history, Melinda Christopher and 49 other TDF personnel died at Sheboygan Spaceport a week after the signing of the Articles of Exile. Based on his last message, chances are good that Brewer was one of those 50. He was just one more casualty due to the war, one more name on a list that was too long to begin with, one more death occurring long after the end of combat. Section Day of Exile on 7 August 2050, the last of the TDF supplies and personnel arrived at the spaceport. As reported by Sheboygan County Sheriff Ronald Bellamy, after the unfortunate events of a few weeks ago here, the Prime Minister issued an executive order placing the port under complete TDF jurisdiction. Source, Day of Exile, a report. So the TDF took up one final guard position before leaving Earth for good. Once all the TDF supplies were loaded into their ships, all personnel came onto the spaceport grounds. As previously mentioned, the Prime Minister had arranged for a missing man aerial overflight as a send-off. Very fortunately, live coverage of the overflight has survived the years. Sherman Welsh, senior military analyst for the network, describes the overflight as it approaches the port and passes overhead. Scott? Those are our fighter jets that were recommissioned toward the end of the war, save the lead craft. That is a non-defense trans-atmospheric fighter. The way this formation is set up is very significant. The lead ship, uh, you can see it in the area shot, has TDF markings on its wings. This formation is signaling how the nations of the world have followed the lead of the TDF. Scott, uh, watch for what the TDF craft does. This is a message from the government to its people. While the people's voice forced the vote that exiled the TDF, this overflight is going to symbolize the response of at least part of the government. Source, Day of Exile, a report. Following the footage, one sees the TDF fighter break away, pulling up into a steep climb. This was an honor overflight. As the TDF jet separated from the formation, they kept its place void. It's saying, the efforts, the impact of the TDF continue, carry on, despite them leaving. It honors that exodus. It also, I would point out, is symbolic of the fact that this planet still moves forward, even without the TDF. Source, Day of Exile, a report. The most stunning part of that report, though, comes after the honor overflight. In the words of Sherman Welsh, When it was clear that the TDF was disembarking, the crowds here were overall quite jubilant. Cheers and raucous singing began as if by their own volition. Now, however, it is simply uh, the larger craft are getting underway now. This is a very somber crowd. No cheers, no celebrating. Some are holding hands, simply, some simply holding each other. Source, Day of Exile, a report. The historical impact of the insurrection was profound, its effects felt globally. Scott Gellert well summed up the import of the moment as Eric Pullman's craft was lost to the clouds.
Today, August 7th, 2050, marks a change in Earth's history. Marks a change in human events for decades to come. Now, with the exception of police forces globally, there are no organized armed forces anywhere on Earth. As of this moment, humanity has begun a new chapter in its history. Never before has life on Earth, since mankind first picked up a spear, been so devoid of the means of warfare. What comes next in human history is entirely new, a first of its kind. Source, Day of Exile, a report. Section, Rise of Censorship. Despite the tremendous cost, both in human and economic terms, of the insurrection, its impact continued for some time after that first exile day. As stated at the beginning of this paper, soon after the exile, the government initiated an intentionally systematic effort of controlling the recorded history of the insurrection. The extant theories behind such a move point either to the government removing their deep involvement with the TDF or the government coming under the control of civilian members of a deeper chaos-initiated movement. As shown in a moment, the latter theory, despite its many adherents, including this author, loses credence yearly due to the implication of such a theory. Thus, the former seems the more likely explanation, and, while lack of proof is not proof, the government certainly had friendly or better relations with both ATMO and the TDF throughout their existence, as demonstrated in this paper. Therefore, the former theory, with its supporting lack of evidence, gains credence among the ATMO underground nearly, even as the latter loses credibility. To the former, yet preserved, is the Terran Government Resolution 513, written and signed into law the sixth year after Exile Day on 8 August 2056. The government directed that a new department within its auspices be created, the Department of Censorship. Such a department was to be responsible for the review and seizure of all items dealing with the War of Insurrection. Further, the department was given sole legal responsibility for the disposition of such items and, toward that end, was granted full constabulary and judicial authority over such matters. Source, Terran Government Resolution 513. As part of Resolution 513, Perennially, on Exile Day, the first official act, the House of Commons and the Senate, acting in their first con congressional session, are required to vote on the continued existence and extension of funding for the Department of Censorship. Within a day, by Resolution 513, the Department, upon being renewed, creates and circulates a report on activities of the last reporting period. Included in the Appendix C is the latest such publication of 8 August 2527. As of this reporting, the Ministry had collected over 5 billion unique artifacts, well in excess of 1,763,000, just in the latter half of the past reporting period alone. In this report, the Department also includes a formal request for funding increase of 10% for the improvement of security around artifact holding centers due to continued raids on them. Source, 471st Ministry. As should be clear by the above numbers, the statutory authority of the Department of Censorship to enact such procedures it may deem necessary for the swift, efficient, and effective execution in its duties related to the search and seizure of artifacts and persons in possession of such artifacts. Source, Terran Government Resolution 513 has largely had a net positive increase in the seizure of artifacts. The ATMO Underground is the only agency, so to speak, that stands in true opposition to the Department of Censorship. It is, in fact, from members of the ATMO Underground and their secret collections that most sources for this paper originate. Through independent analysis, all sources are confirmed authentic and are reliably from their indicated dates of publication or transmission. Even with the preservation efforts of such brave people as exist in the ATMO underground, daily, risking the threat of being arrested, detained, or simply made to disappear, much has successfully been lost to history as regards the insurrection. 
The oral history itself is purported to have evolved as a response to the Department of Censorship's initial surge of success in its first decade of existence. A child's guide, originally published on the 250th anniversary of the first exile day, was an attempt by the ministry to actively combat the existence of the oral history. Again, though, both were merely responses to events, the point herein being that history, true factual history, is obscured more every passing year. Section Preservation and Restoration As stated in its synopsis, the Walker Report found that the long-defunct NAR Defense Works had no part in or complicity with any TDF-led actions during the War of Noble Cause. Source, Walker Commission. However, recently uncovered interviews and materials, including several quoted in this paper, point to the fact that all of the top eight members of ATMO, and so the TDF, were at one time employed by NAR Defense. Further, as stated in the document Disposition of NAR Defense, NAR merged with another R&D company by the name of Stawes. Together they formed a new company by the name of SNN Industries. Source, Disposition of NAR Defense. SNN Industries is a yet extant, publicly traded company. That is to say that NAR, in some form, survives. What remains in this paper, then, is the truth, the historically accurate truth, of that which was the insurrection. From sources available to the historical community, it is known that the war started sometime between the establishment of the TDF in October 2041 and the breach of the Mexico-United States border on 23 October 2045. Historians in the Atmo Underground agree also on the dates of the Battle of Chicago, 3 May 2046, and the Battle of Thermopylae, 4 May 2047. For much of the last year of the war, the TDF spent their time primarily as rebuilders and peacekeepers. Finally, on 12 April 2049, Chaos made his last stand at the Acropolis Mount in the Temple of Athena Nike, resulting in its destruction. After more than a year, the Terran government's tribunals handed down their Articles of Exile for the TDF on 7 July 2050. By the end of the day, one month later, the TDF had passed from Earth's present into her past. No contact was ever kept with the exiles. As such, no one knows precisely what happened to them. What is known by historians is that during the opening third of the 23rd century, settlements began on Mars, a planet left terraformed by the exiles. They left no trace on Mars, no ships nor signs of where they might have gone. The settlements led to contracts for building specialist immigration. The influx of these workers in late 2229 was itself the beginning of what is known as the colonization age of Mars. By 2330, the colonization began to spread planet-wide, reaching into the more remote regions of Mars. Even then, no trace of the exiles was found. From the time of the first settlers, the exiles were considered dead or gone, moved on once more at the approach of their old cousins from Earth. Nothing has been found since to contradict this position. Section Conclusion The Atmo Underground, however, continues its quest for the maintenance of true history. Even though the TDF is gone, their impact on humanity lives on. On the 375th anniversary of the TDF's exile, Someone anonymously published an opine by the title, The Insurrection, Some Good Points. The censors have, time and again, tried to suppress this article. It is, however, a staple of every artifact collection this author has had the chance to see. The author points out, Many of the initial medical advances on which our current technology base has been built were made during the time of the PAX TDF. It was during the same time that a reinvestment in spaceflight brought about humanity's ability to seriously look at Luna as a second home. It is what made possible the profitable mining of near-Earth and near-Martian asteroids for minerals, which itself sparked its own renaissance in materials production. Without the TDF and its influence on humanity, 
we would not be where we are today. Source, The Insurrection, Some Good Points. This author, as was his stated purpose at the outset of this paper, has herein done his best to preserve the extant history of the TDF and refresh it with new connections and details were, to date, available. Humanity finds itself closing quickly on the 500th anniversary of the Day of Exile, and so too on the end of the War of Insurrection. In their hope to avoid another such war, in their attempts to suppress their own involvement in such a war, in their laws that create the very tools of information suppression, the government has inspired the Atmo Underground. Those who are its members yearly renew and redouble their efforts at historical preservation, as does the, minister, as does the Ministry of Censorship to stamp them out. Never, though, can the impact of the TDF and its leading and founding members be erased. To be sure, they brought about death and destruction such as humanity had not seen since. At the same time, they helped create an environment in which the sciences were fostered out of their infancy into full bloom. No apology can be made for what the TDF did during the war, but, likewise, nothing can be done to ever truly erase what they've done to help advance humanity toward the stars. Works cited. Source. 1st Squad, 2nd Platoon, Fox Company, 1st Battalion, 12th TDF. Interview by Julia Leist. Mexico, U.S. Border, 22 October, 2046. Source. Articles of Exile. Nuremberg Tribunals, 7 July, 2050. Source. Brewer, Tommy. Polcat Messages. Collection. 12 August 2045 to 13 July 2050. Source. Bring in the troops to send them out. Dissension Collection. 8 July 2050. Christopher. James. Expansion Memo NAR Defense. The Moore Collection. Christopher. James. Interview by Scott Gellert. New York, New York. 23 October 2045. Source, Christopher James. NAR Reply to USDOD. The Moore Collection, 2035. Source, Christopher James and Christopher Melinda. Interview by Katie Ralston. Atmo Labs, Wisconsin, 17 July, 2039. Source, Constitution of the Terran Union. First Congress, First Session, 2021. Source, Day of Exile, a report. Produced and directed by H.D. Motley. CDS News, VPN Home Video, 7 August 2050. Source, Disposition of NAR Defense. AP Press Release, 17 August 2042. Source, Dramatic Rescue, New York Times, 2035. Source. Fact Sheet. Museum Ship USS Bill Clinton, 2520. Source. Fremen D'Andre. The Fremen Fragment. The Moore Collection. Source. Gary2457. Baby Killers. Chicago Tribune, 20 May, 2045. Section 3C, page 6. Gary2457. Slaughterhouse Butchers, Chicago Tribune, 24 May 2045, Section 3C, Page 6. Source, Gellert, Scott, and Ralston Cady, Darkest Hour, CDS News Network, 3 May 2027. Source, Henshaw, Amy, Report of General Henshaw to President Taylor, The Moore Collection. Source, Hume Alexander, interview by Tariq Smith, Fox News Network, 12 March 2527. John 316, Walking About Barefoot, Chicago Tribune, 30 May 2045, Section 3C, Page 6. Source, Ministry of Censorship, A Child's Guide to the War of Noble Cause, Versailles, Terran Government Printing Office, 2523. 
Source. Notice and report from the Ministry of Censorship, 471st Ministry, 2527. Source. NAR Defense Charter, The Moore Collection, 2031. Source. Paul is dead. Wikipedia. Permalink, http, en.wikipedia.org slash wiki slash paul underscore is underscore dead. 3 September, 2526. Source. Scotch 420. We don't need him. Sheboygan Press, 3 August, 2050. Section 2D, page 3. Source. The Insurrection, Some Good Points. New Chicago Bugle, 7 August, 2425. Opines. Source. Terran Government Resolution 513, 35th Congress, 1st Session, 2056. Source. Top 10. Dissension Collection. Source. Walker Commission. A report of the Walker Commission on the exile of the TDF. Versailles, Terran Government Printing Office, 2350. We're now into Appendix C, a hero's report, the sources. We start out with elements of the Moore Collection. I'm not going to get through all of these tonight, I don't think, but I will read some of them, and we will see how far we get and continue on next time. I'm probably going to make this about a 50-minute episode at this point, so I might read about seven pages worth of sources, maybe six. More collection. Report of General Henshaw to President Taylor. The following is what remains of a report written by United States General Amy Henshaw to United States President Leanne Taylor regarding the actions of the group known as ATMO. As with the Fremen fragment, some portions were lost to fire. This report is reliably dated to the same half year as the Fremen fragment. The top two thirds of the report was taken by fire have performed admirably. Never in any of our reports on them have they ever incurred a single civilian casualty. Their success rate in the field is 100%. Any company that hires ATMO onto its payroll can count on the contract being fulfilled. As to your question of legality, all reports affirm that ATMO does not go out of its way to inform local constabulary agencies of its operations. Domestically, only on two of seven operations has ATMO ever front-loaded an operation with local, state, or federal law enforcement assistance. Their actions generally, when considered after the fact, do not constitute actions worthy of judiciary review. Nonetheless, ATMO does act as law unto itself. In compiling this report, ma'am, you also asked for my personal and professional opinion of ATMO's actions. Professionally, I view them as a threat to order. They fall under no jurisdictional guidelines or authority that we, or anyone else, control. Even their financial accounts are without our ability to affect. In terms of raw military power, two teams of ATMO commandos would be more than a match for at least a few companies of airborne as trained to today's standards. On a personal level, these people are doing a job that governments cannot, either because they are unwilling or unable. I would remind Madam President that they already helped rescue several of our senators while they were on tour of the rebuilding efforts in the Middle East. While they operate outside the law, I would suggest giving them fair latitude. They are amiable to the United States and could prove a reliable ally in the future should we need it. All field reports and figures are available for your review upon request. Additionally, feel free to contact my office anytime with any questions regarding this report or any previous one on NAR defense. Best regards, Amy Henshaw, General, USA. The Fremen Fragment The following is what remains of a report by Andre Fremen to NAR defense. It, as well as several other documents in this collection, was damaged by an early Department of Censorship purge. What remains was salvaged from the burn remnants. 2. Naw Defense, R&D. From Dondre Fremen, ATMO. Regarding 
Action of 20 June 2035. The operation began smoothly. My advance team and I properly inserted into the region at 2215 hours local. The following day we began standard surveillance and recon. Two teams we set up around the extraction zone while I and a burn through obscures part of the text here. Area. We proceeded through the square, ladling as we went. On our second pass, obscured text, government team had used. Thus we identified the building. At 22.30, the third day, Meng and Jessica arrived. Extraction routes were defined with secondary set. Entry to the compound was executed according to plan. According, during the extraction, Meng's team came under heavy fire. I led my team on as the rest of the report was destroyed by fire. Dramatic Rescue Newspaper Report on Senator's Rescue what follows is the text of a newspaper article relating extant details of the rescue of seven United States of America senators, aides, and military escorts from their captivity in Tripoli, Libya. It was quite a sight to see the crowd's response as the plane's door opened to reveal the first of seven rescued senators. Freshman Senator Theodore Byrd, Republican Louisiana, was first off the plane. He kept looking back up the stairs as the rest of the senators disembarked. His, though, was typical of the reaction of all the senators. Senior among them, Senator Nancy Lemons, Democrat, Virginia, expressed it best when she addressed the crowd. We all want to thank you from the bottom of our hearts for this truly humbling outpouring of support. However, we hope you will join us in greeting the real heroes of this moment, the military men and women of our escort, several of whom sadly lost their lives in the raid that took us all hostage. It was by their skill and determination that all of us lived to be rescued. Descending from the plane, then, came the platoon of army rangers who had been the senatorial escort. First Lieutenant Tom Harper, descending the stairs last. Senator Lemons, welcomed him to the podium to say a few words. I'm somewhat overwhelmed, he began. I've never had a welcome home reception quite like this. To be honest, we just did our jobs as best we could. If we could, I would appreciate a moment of silence for my five troopers who gave their lives. After a minute, the lieutenant continued. Folks, there's really another group who deserves your thanks as much as we do. That would be Atmo. I know that our forces were already on their way to our rescue when Atmo stepped in, but they snapped to action immediately and came without hesitation. Our people would have been another six hours coming. Atmo was ready to go when negotiations went south. We owe them our lives this day, Tom finished. Applause erupted then from the entire crowd. No Atmo personnel were on hand for comment. U.S. General Henshaw released the following statement later in the day. As Lieutenant Harper had indicated, our own special forces teams were en route to Tripoli when Atmo troops initiated their operation. Early on during the situation, they were in personal contact with me offering their help. Once we realized that our troops were not yet on the ground and yet saw the need for such, we activated Atmo and sent them in. The President and I have both spoken to Meng Tao of Atmo and thanked him for his timely assistance in the matter. Henshaw additionally stressed that Atmo acted pro bono of their own volition in this operation. Overall, the swift, the swift revolution, resolution of the situation only serves to highlight the growing role Atmo plays in today's world. It likewise raises renewed validity to the arguments of Matthew Welsh and his dissident movement as the group who took the senators hostage claimed to do so to help raise awareness of the plight of the yet poor in the Middle East. Even so, this day people from across the United States have tweeted and posted their thanks to Atmo, as does this reporter. At John Hall, many thanks to Atmo. Keep up the good work. Hashtag Atmo. Hashtag Cap Senators. NAR Defense Charter The following is a text-only version of the charter. The original, due to age, has not been scanned. Additionally, being handwritten in American cursive, it is hard to read by those not accustomed to its form. 
On this day, March 14th, 2031, we, the undersigned, found Na Defense, a technology research and development company, under the following provisions. So long as we live, and so long as this company endures, we agree to abide by the following founding principles. First, let us start any project with the clear intention that it be intended for the greater good. All undertakings of Nod Offense should be so done as to yield the most good for the most people. Second, any such undertakings will be made by unanimous consent of the Board of Chairpersons at the signing consent of Eric Pullman, James, and Melinda Christopher and Adam Green. Third, such consent as above shall be held inviolable, as every project undertaken by NAR Defense will be done so at mutual risk and cost to those in the company. All risk and reward is shared. In this way, all NAR personnel will be motivated only toward the greater good, highest efficiency, and work ethic. Fourth, that future expansion of NAR Defense facilities will likewise be done by mutual consent in concert with available funds. NAR will never outgrow its ability to be self-sufficient. Fifth, that if, at any time in the future, it is deemed necessary to add or replace chairpersons of the company, it will be done by unanimous consent of those chairpersons existing at the time. Sixth, that housing will be made available and maintained at company expense on company property for the future good of the company, as recruitment of talent from far distant and culturally diverse places will no doubt occur, we seek to provide and nurture a welcoming, supportive community of scientists, technicians, and employees. Never, however, will on-campus living be imposed as a necessity of any employee. Seventh, if at any time a change to this charter be deemed necessary, it shall be done so by unanimous consent of all NAR employees. This charter, well thought out and researched, forms a firm bedrock on which to build NAR defense. Changes to such a bedrock require mutual consent and full cooperation. Eighth and finally, we enter into this charter as equal partners and friends. So shall anyone enter into NAR defense. Hierarchies will arise out of necessity, but none will alter the base bonds of equality of voice and worth that so bring us together. To the above principles we bind our pledge of fealty, to have them be our guiding force, and to uphold them through trials and tribulations. A witness thereof, we hereto affix our signatures this 14th day of March in the year 2031. James Christopher Melinda Christopher Eric Pullman Adam Green And finally, for this podcast episode, Expansion Memo, NAR Defense. To NAR Personnel, from James Christopher, CEO, regarding campus construction and spring update. Hello again to all NAR personnel. I hope this Wisconsin spring again finds you doing well. As I have done the past three years, I wanted to update you on the status of NAR Defense. First of all, let me be the first to tell you we have again been awarded a DoD project, this time for several dozen fighters for four of the U.S. Navy's top-of-the-line aircraft carriers. The production schedule, as always, is short, but well within our ability to meet. More details will be forthcoming as soon as all the necessary paperwork has been signed and exchanged. Second, you may have noticed more military advisors around the campus already. With our continually increasing production lines, the Board of Controllers decided to okay the hiring of eight more advisors, a few of whom were already in our personnel. Anwar Samid, who served as a staff sergeant for the United States Army during the Coalition War. Jose Lopez, who served as a sergeant for the Marine Corps before being honorably discharged from active duty. And Alicia Smith, who served as a first lieutenant for the Air Force during the Coalition War will be transferring from their research roles into more advisory and testing positions. While we needn't say goodbye, we do welcome them into their new roles. Third, please excuse our dust. We are again expanding and upgrading our vehicle testing course. As such, heavy equipment will be bringing in necessary raw materials over the next couple months. We are doing our best to route such construction traffic through the campus's auxiliary rear entrance. All in all, I see all these as good omens for NAR Defense in the year ahead. I look forward to another productive and safe year working with all of you. And I will stop it there for today.
next week we will again still be in uh, the source material of the appendices. There are about 65 more pages worth of these to go and they'll, they will wrap up with polecat messages. At 65 pages that's probably about three more weeks worth of episodes of just the appendix material. Uh, you'll see it in the title of the episodes if you want to just skip over those that's okay. Please be aware this does help fill in gaps of the main plot line, the main part of the book, and it also helps to give a little background on some important new characters that we're going to see in the sequel to this book. So, with that though, again, I would encourage you to subscribe to Chris Reed's book, either through iTunes or your favorite podcast application. Go over to the webpage, narclaninc.com. There you can find the Chris Reed's book. Uh, well, actually, you can find Chris Pullman's author page, my author page, on Facebook, as well as uh, my Twitter account. And hook up with me there. I post out there every new episode that I put online, so you can stay up to date that way, in case you don't do the whole podcast thing. That way, you'll also have a direct link to the latest mp3 file on the website. Speaking of, narclaninc.com, that's N-A-R-C-L-A-N-I-N-C.com. That is my website. That is where you can go to download the raw mp3 files of this podcast. Also, worth mentioning, if you search for my name, Chris Pullman, to try and find this podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast app, you will likely come across another podcast, Whiskey and MASH. That is a podcast where my mother-in-law and I watch two episodes of MASH and then review those episodes as well as a character. So we just started that. We're only a few episodes into that podcast, but I think it's going pretty well and it's probably worth at least a listen. If you're enjoying this podcast, the best way that you could help support it is to share it. Share it with a friend, a family member, a co-worker, someone you know. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, feel free to email me at chrisreadsbook at narclaninc.com. With that, we'll end the podcast. Thank you again for coming back week after week and listening to this. I appreciate it a lot, and I look forward to hearing from you and your thoughts on this episode. Until next week, have a good week.